Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform out there. And we're excited to share they now offer dedicated virtual droplets. And unlike standard droplets, which use shared virtual CPU threads, their two performance plans, general purpose and CPU optimized, they have dedicated virtual CPU threads. This translates to higher performance and increased consistency during CPU intensive processes. So if you have build boxes, CI, CD, video encoding, machine learning, ad serving, game servers, databases, batch processing, data mining, application servers, or active front end web servers that need to be full duty CPU all day, every day, then check out DigitalOcean's dedicated virtual CPU droplets. Pricing is very competitive starting at 40 bucks a month. Learn more and get started for free with a $100 credit at do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. And now onto the show. Welcome to Practical AI. This is Daniel Whitenack, and I'm uh, joined by my co-host, Chris Benson, who is an AI strategist at Lockheed Martin. How you doing, Chris? Doing great. How's it going today, Daniel? Oh, it's going pretty good. I'm uh, packing up and getting ready to do a very non-AI data science thing, which is going uh, going backpacking for a bit. So I'm going to... Oh, that sounds great. I'm going to be out of touch uh, next week and hopefully away from any sort of cell phone signal and that sort of thing. So actually, I'm pretty pretty excited. Fantastic. What, what area are you going to be in? Uh, I'm going up to uh, Minnesota to uh, the Superior Hiking Trail which goes along uh, Lake Superior. So it should be should be a good time. It'll be be a new one for me. And I have no doubt that, uh, you know, being in isolation a little bit will give my mind some time to think about all of those AI problems that I, <laughs> that I am trying to solve as well. So looking forward to that. Sounds good. Yeah, well, today um, we're very privileged to be joined by uh, David Yakobovich, uh, who is a principal data scientist at Galvanize and also uh, a fellow podcast host. Um, he's the host of the Humane podcast. So Humane, like with the AI um, emphasized. Uh, and we're really happy to have you here, David. Thanks so much, guys. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, first off, why don't you kick things off by uh, giving us a little bit of your background and how you got interested in AI data science things and ended up where you're at now? Sure. So uh, ever since I was young, I loved math competition and I competed both in the state and national level uh, in the US and went to college actually for applied mathematics and physics and you know doing theoretical proofs and quickly realized the industry was changing from research to applied. So I started moving in the direction of code and applied research, which led me down the path of actuarial science back in 2010. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So this is kind of maybe just at the start of a lot of the data science hype. Maybe? That's right. Right. Big data wasn't even the word till 2012. Uh, you know, the AI revival was only kicking off around then. So I think in 2012, uh, I first learned C Sharp. I was also playing with Fortran and COBOL because that's what the company I worked for had. So I was picking up some of those old languages, right? But Solid. Um, COBOL's never going away, I don't think. Fortran either, as far as I can tell. Yeah, especially with financial services. So I, I've seen that uh, reemerge over the years. And um, although that's a tangent, but I, I think that's interesting because as everyone's moving to cloud, you know, it's still how do we maintain these systems with these languages? Um, but I love it because um, I'll, I'll go back in, into the background. But when I teach a lot today, I tell the students, hey, if you want to work in Jupyter, if you want to work in an IDE, guess what? It supports Fortran and COBOL. So you can always pick up those old languages. Yeah, it's something it would be a definitely a uh, fun exercise. And I've kind of done this a little bit with not not those languages, but kind of trying to implement things side by side in different notebooks and see see how they look and uh, experiment that way is, is a fun thing to do. Yeah. Didn't you do bindings for Go, Daniel, if I recall? Yeah. So I, I worked originally um, on the one of the first uh, Go kernels for for Jupyter, um, which is now maintained by other people who are who are doing great things with it. But um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, fun times to be had with Jupyter and languages other than Python, I would say. That's super cool. And it's amazing how the bindings have evolved the technology. And, you know, uh, when I was getting involved in actuarial science, not much of that existed. Even APIs uh, were just emerging in a certain aspect. So, you know, back in 2010, um, it was around the water cooler, literally at the office in person before remote work was even happening. Teams were saying, hey, we're thinking about getting on the cloud. Hey, we're thinking about getting these servers. And people were talking about Python in this language. And yeah, Python's been around since the 1990s, but um, it was just getting uh, into the financial services back then. So I said, I'm going to pick it up and started learning it. And before you know it, uh, the last uh, eight years have been involved with different financial services companies, uh, implementing data solutions with Python and uh, helping them build everything from analytics and dashboards to predictive models and setting up uh, data strategy uh, as well as building out centers of excellence. And you know that led me um, to not only learn how to teach and how to code, but then how to help others uh, take over processes. I think having worked with a lot of companies over the years, one of the biggest flaws we always see is not enough things are documented, and it's really challenging for those not coming from tech to pick up tech skills. So I've always been that go-to person around the water cooler to teach you how to use Excel and SQL and Python. And it just became a natural fit in the past few years where I got into learning and development, pedagogy and training. So that is a perfect segue into a uh, first question I have for you. And that is, tell us about Galvanize and, you know, what do you do? And, uh, you know, how does that how did that come into your life here? Sure. So Galvanize was founded in 2012. We're one of the bootcamp providers for software engineering and data science in the United States. Uh, we have three segments of the business, a consumer, a remote, and an enterprise. I'm on the enterprise corporate arm, and that plays a lot to my previous skill set of helping other individuals learn tech in corporate. 
Prior to being at Galvanize, I was at General Assembly, doing the same thing on our enterprise side, working with financial clients, um, scaling hundreds of individuals in organizations to reskill and upskill in the Python programming language, in Jupyter, uh, in working with return on investment projects uh, for their divisions. And um, you know, at Galvanize, we have all those divisions as well. Uh, we are both consumer and enterprise facing, uh, and, and we're all over the U.S. And I think what's most exciting is there's been so much growth happening in 2019, and we're seeing that even into the next three years, predominantly because everyone is wanting to reskill and upskill, and code is now the first thing that people are picking up. Yeah, and as you kind of got into that training side of things, I mean, it sounds like you got into sort of data science training pretty early in terms of these when these programs were were coming out and that sort of thing what really motivated you to to see that need for better data data science training or was it kind of a personal thing um on on your side where you really kind of developed some passion for teaching or or found out you were good at it or or what what led you down that path so for me, it's very mission-driven, even since middle school in the math competitions, because we would have math competitions where you not only competed individually, but you had team uh, assessments. And that's where you would have to solve four questions between 30 to 60 seconds and come up with a group answer. Uh, it's incredible how fast-paced um, it was, uh, both you know, statewide, nationally, and internationally. And so if you had a weakest link on your team, you had to get them up to speed so that you can successfully perform. So I've always been interested in, in helping everyone uh, rise to the occasion. Um, but beyond that, um, I've noticed how technology has transformed so quickly. So my father actually um, was an entrepreneur and owned a business that uh, worked at the schematic level to repair TVs, VCRs, DVDs, and, and all sort of electronic gadgets in South Florida. You know, all throughout the 80s and 90s, at one point, this company grew to over 20 people. They have three locations. They're doing millions of dollars of business a year. Um, and then before you know it, the whole industry changed, right? All these new smart TVs appeared, you know, products disappeared. And it was so challenging to keep up with the times and technology. And before you know it, the whole servicing industry and warranty industry started to evaporate. And, you know, fortunately, uh, for our family, my dad was already in his 60s when that started, so he went into an early retirement. Um, but then I started thinking, you know, hey, how could someone like my dad learn to code? And he really wanted to. So, uh, and, and he had that capacity because he had that technical mind working with fixing electronics with capacitors and and all these gadgets and. You know, it was interesting because I, in essence, mentored my dad as he was picking up Python through some of these platforms and, and coaching him. And at the end of the day, what I realized is he didn't want to learn Python for data analysis, right? He knew at 63 years old that he wasn't going to become a data analyst at the Fortune 500 company. But he knew if he could take the work that he did in RPA and robotics and apply Python there, it would make a lot more sense. So... What did my dad naturally do? He bought Arduino boards and Raspberry Pi boards and connected sensors to refract light off the walls in the living room and sound waves when the dogs moved and sensed actually position locations for where movement was occurring because he was always sensing movement with audio and for visual on those TVs and the soundboards. So it was so interesting for me as a takeaway to realize to make 
code and to make languages stick, you have to make it relatable for the learners and you have to provide them capstones that they can take back for their portfolio and they're having a fun time learning as well. I got to say that sounds uh, your dad sounds super cool there, you know, getting into that. I I certainly uh, think there's a lesson to be learned there about, you know, always kind of lo- looking for the new thing, no matter what age you're at and, and staying engaged and diving in. To broaden it a little bit, as we look at uh, data science training, uh, both in industry and in academia and kind of, you know, it's it's evolved so quickly over the last few years. Where is it lacking? What is industry doing well and not so well? Where could they improve? And the same for academia. And are we really doing a good job preparing data scientists for for getting out there in the world at this point? So it's super interesting because at our organization, I do work a lot with the New York City government on their different programs with the Small Business Administration and training programs. So I sit down with politicians and local leaders and talk about how are we serving constituents who are making $18,000 a year and get them up to $85,000 a year. And the truth is most programs are really rushing into industry without full preparation. So we haven't seen the best results all throughout. Um, Many programs say, hey, you know, our average graduate makes $78,000 and they get a job, you know, within six months of graduation. But that's not always true. Um, for us at Galvanize, we are on both course report and switch up and we have everything that's peer reviewed and checked through the industry to make sure that we're giving you the real facts on uh, how our students do and perform. But, you know, even then for us, we're constantly having to innovate on the curriculum. You see now all the universities are launching data science programs and a lot of them are getting into AI programs as well. Um, Whether you're looking at the first ones like Berkeley and Columbia or other ones popping up all around the country, I wouldn't say any of them have won the game per se um, because the technology is changing so fast. I think when someone's thinking about going into learning through a data science training program, whether it's a university or a bootcamp, it depends on the goal you're looking to achieve. If you're going directly into an undergrad or a master's program, it makes sense to tack it on so you have that extra skill set that's going to help future-proof yourself uh, in whatever role that you move into in, in your career. But if you're going straight into a boot camp without any other prior experience, it's often a struggle because those boot camps, if you're doing the full time, which is 60 to 100 hours a week for three months, and then you're expecting to get a job afterwards, there's a reality check I have to share with most students. I tell them that you need to have a basis there. The biggest students who have great success going through boot camps are those who are already software engineers or have a PhD. And that's a very limited pool, right? So if you're coming from a liberal arts movement, you can be successful in a boot camp. However, you're gonna have to put in a lot of time and work to see those results. And the classic example I share with students is if you're someone who already is a software engineer, and you only study two hours a week and look to get that job, but you're someone who's a liberal arts, but you spend 10 hours a week, you're gonna ramp up a lot quicker than the software engineer, just not in the beginning. So it is all about time output and thinking smarter. Is there a program that's better or worse? There's so many out there, and I like to say that we have some of the best programs in the industry, but they're constantly evolving. And I think when you choose a program you wanna be involved in, you want to make sure that that institution or uh, that boot camp has full-time curriculum people who are constantly innovating and improving, and to be willing to ask them, yeah, what's the tech stack? What are we going to learn? You know, are we just learning Python? But what packages and what databases and you know what projects? And feel free to ask those big, tough questions because that's going to serve you best down the road. So. 
I mean, I hear a little bit of what you're saying in terms of like the uh, helping people understand where, where they really want to get to, where they're coming from. Do you feel like as a industry, we've crystallized at all in terms of what like a data scientist is? I, it seems like for so long and maybe still to some in many ways, defining what data science is, is just like so varied that it almost mm. it almost loses meaning yeah. in some sense, because it could be like, oh, you know, uh, you're doing TensorFlow and deep learning mm -hmm. all the way to sort of analytics things to like big data as kind of distributed processing right. things. Um, do you think that we've kind of crystallized around that around that term at all? I, I've noticed like recently a lot more effort in, in terms of kind of specialized mm -hmm. uh, job role titles like, you know, like machine learning engineer sure. or, um, you know, even like things like data science engineer mm -hmm. or data. Of course, data engineer has been around for a while now, like AI engineer it seems like a lot of people are kind of shifting to the side of like oh we need to add like engineer in the name because like these data science people coming through don't really know how to build anything right so i don't know what it, what is your sense of of that as you kind of survey people coming through these sorts of programs the types of positions that they're looking for the types of things industry is looking for what is your perspective on that right so if i look at the ml engineer that's someone who has software experience in building Building applications and a data engineer is someone who could already work with cloud systems or distributed systems. And often the boot camps and the master's programs just don't give enough there, right? And that's why you want to look at capstones for that. But I think um, the challenge is there's so much information to cover and pack into it that data science has just become this term that encompasses the industry. And how I look at it is, you know, simply put, uh, what used to be big data became predictive analytics, became data science, which is now the AI industry. It's constantly evolving. But the truth is when you look at data science roles, um, 60 to 80% of the work is still in the data. It's cleaning data, it's labeling data, it's getting it all set up. Um, I featured actually um, just at the beginning of August on the Humane podcast, uh, Mark Sears, who runs Cloud Factory, which is one of the big uh, data labeling companies between Europe and Africa. And you know they have 10,000 people just labeling data. And I think the reality that a lot of data scientists don't know until they join a company is you're not playing with algorithms all day. Maybe you might, but even an ML engineer, you're going to be working with uh, APIs and, and setting up pipelines and systems before you get to start training and testing and working with other teams to see those results. So uh, I definitely see a specialization occurring in the field. In fact, I'm calling uh, now a new subfield emerging in data science, which we're starting to see in some trend reports called data science as a service. Um, so similar to how we saw infrastructure as a service with things from like HashiCorp with you know Ansible and Terraform and, and a lot of deployment options for the cloud. We're gonna start seeing that and we already are in data science as a service. So we're seeing companies like Neptune and Spell and Weights and Bias and, and other ones which have all just recently raised their series A's that are helping um, deploy systems. You even see the founders of Anaconda, a couple of them branched off and launched Saturn Cloud which is you know, launch these systems in Docker containers and whoop, now do your data science. Paperspace also in Brooklyn got notorious for that and has been doing a phenomenal job partnering with companies like, you know, Fast AI and um, Insight Data Science Fellowship as well. 
you know, as a kind of as a follow up to that, it kind of feels like our industry is starting to grow up. Um, I'm I'm older than the two of you guys, and I was around when the internet first kind of exploded and went mainstream. And, you know, in the early 90s, and it was, you, you went from a very few job descriptions that were then kind of fragmented as it exploded outward and had, you know, many dozens of job descriptions very soon. It feels to me very much like the data science world and the AI world are kind of starting to do that now, where instead of every role being tied to a data scientist, you're, you're seeing lots of specialization and, and the, the, even the, and, and therefore even data scientist is becoming a little bit specialized in terms of, of what activities it does in that eco, ecosystem. Do you have any thoughts on that? That makes complete sense. You know, a lot of companies now in consulting are actually hiring staff data scientists. These are data scientists who are supporting many teams, but then some teams hire a data scientist to help with just that division. So I think you're gonna see that where there are those who are both cross-functional and those focused only on a product. Uh, and actually for those who are looking for data science and AI jobs now, Next time you're checking out a company uh, and you're looking at their job boards, whether that's on their website or Indeed or LinkedIn, I encourage you to see um, in the job description, what are they talking about, right? Is it the product? Is it the team? Is it the whole company? And in fact, when you're looking at that for a role, um, it's important to look at the requirements and the recommendations. So often, you know, people choose to apply or not apply for jobs based on if they check every single box on there. But having interviewed and worked with on hiring teams to bring in a lot of data scientists at Galvanize and at other companies, um, it's not every box that has to be checked. You totally agree. Yeah. I mean, the requirements generally, most of those boxes should be checked. So you do want to make sure you're covering 75% or more. But think of the requirements as must-haves. You generally should have that, but not necessarily everything. And sometimes that tech stack is specific to a company. So if you're looking at 10 data scientist positions between startups and Fortune 500s, Every requirements could be different. Someone uses Python, someone uses R, someone uses TensorFlow, someone uses MXNet. My goodness, should you learn them all just until you get a job? I don't think so, right? Go with what you got and uh, and then start applying that. And in the interview, you know, companies are very flexible with that, right? If, if you're like, oh, I'm amazing at R, but I'm just picking up Python. Sure, I'm going to do the code interview in R. Let's see what you can do. And if you do it great, you know what? Phenomenal. And there's so many integrations happening there. I also think this is such a tangent, but I think R is playing catch up. You know, R fell in the rankings to only the ninth most desirable language this past year. They used to be top five for a few years. And uh, now they're playing catch up. There's some really cool new packages coming out. So I wouldn't be surprised if R climbs back up the leaderboard in the next couple of years. Hey, guess what? Brain Science is officially launched. Episode number one is on the feed right now. So head to changelaw.com slash brain science to listen, to subscribe, and to join us on this journey of exploring the human mind. Once again, changelaw.com slash brain science or search for brain science in your favorite podcast app. David, um, we already mentioned that you you have your own AI podcast called the Humane Podcast. 
It's great to have another podcaster on the show with us. Um, it's the first time we've done this and we're really excited to kind of help bridge the gap between some of these different people creating content. So it's really it's really great to, to have that opportunity. Um, I was wondering if you could just share kind of the premise behind the Humane podcast and why you decided to start creating it. Sure. Thanks, guys. You know, I think technology is moving at such a blistering pace in what we're now coining the fourth industrial revolution. And as you mentioned, the gap is continuing to grow, especially between humans and machines. And all these new products are coming out. All these new companies are coming out, which are supposed to improve our lives. But a lot of our jobs are at risk. So I created the Humane Podcast to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, I feature in an interview format uh, conversations with chief data scientists, AI advisors, and leaders who advance AI for all to help everyone learn more about humans and their processes in AI, which is called human-centered AI, empathetic design, which is how we can build better processes for humans, and other topics like AI for social good, AI governance, and AI research. Uh, I think for me, coming up with the Humane Podcast was so natural with all the training and deliveries I've been doing, as well as seeing my dad and his own journey from going in robotics to code and then saying, all right, David, you're the one who's gonna be the next generation. And so I wanted to make sure these conversations could be heard and for a broader audience, because so many people, whether they're working today or they'll be working tomorrow are concerned about these trends and how their jobs will be impacted. So that's a little bit about Humane. Um, another thing about Humane, just fun fact, not many people know, Humane in its spelling in French actually means to be human. So it's a little play in words, throw the AI in there, uh, but it's, it's a great uh, podcast I've had a lot of fun with, been going on for about 10 months. And uh, thanks so much for letting me talk a little bit about that. Sure, I I love the focus on on you know how you're addressing some of the hard questions, and I know that you know Daniel and I are always out there doing talks and meeting people in different events and stuff, and those same questions come up all the time uh, in conversations, and so I think it's really great to just address them head on and and sort through the problems. Um, I'm I'm really kind of curious, could you could you kind of share with us over the last ten months maybe some of the highlights of the of the the various uh, episodes or interviews that you've done? Um, I, I'm really curious, like what 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 are some of the peaks of content that you've had over that time. Yeah, so it's super interesting because I always take a different theme to the podcast. And so I, I reach out to people who I'd love to invite to my dinner table and talk about the industry. Um, you know, one who I had on was about synthetic data. I had uh, Jeremy Kaufman from Scale Venture Partners uh, in Foster City. And we talked about how startups like Keep Trucking and Convoy have scaled into billion dollar ventures by using synthetic data. I had the opportunity to talk with Kristen Carer, um, who is a female founder who works in data science training as well and uh, is based in Boston. And we talked about how the industry has changed from research to applied. I've also spoken with one of my good friends, Noel LaRocherte, who used to be an early employee at the Alexa team uh, in voice, and now just got named the number one uh, voice advocate of 2019. And we recently sat on a panel at the voice conference in Newark, talking about how Microsoft and, and Amazon are working together to create a universal audio bot. 
So what I really love to do is that's just three examples of conversations that we've had on the podcast, but it's to talk about different themes, uh, talk about trends, and you know, speak about how it's relatable to each and every one. So whether someone is a uh, data scientist today, they're a business executive, or there's someone who just wants to get into the industry, it's a little bit of entertainment and education for all. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing those, and I, I actually can't wait to to listen to to some of those uh, some of those that you mentioned. But I want to try to kind of play uh, devil's advocate a little bit here, and and kind of give you a chance to say, um, like, if I am out there and I'm thinking, oh, well, the gap between humans and machines is is widening. Um, basically, what why why should I care? You know, if Gmail is able to kind of complete my complete my sentences and it's convenient for me, um, why should I care that I don't really understand that or I don't understand my data that's being used for that or how it's being used or um, it's just a convenience for me? Why why is the the gap between humans and machines such a concern? Why should we care? I like to place it to something that's personal for each and every person. So one of our presidential candidates right now, Andrew Yang from the state of New York, is talking about being the humanity first presidential candidate. And the reason he's taking that stance is because there are things that we see every day in our life that are being automated. For example, the self-checkout lines at the grocery store used to be run by staff and people who had jobs, whether they were uh, improving their life or, or getting a steady paycheck. And we've now seen several presidential candidates just in the past few weeks actually talk about, do they support self-checkout lines or not? Um, And it seems like this should not be something controversial, but the truth is there's at least a couple million people in the United States who work in grocery stores. And whether that's as assistant managers or helping with transactions or better customer experience, the truth is those are jobs that like that can go away. Uh, We look at places like gas stations, right? If we're in the Northeast in New Jersey, that's one of the few states that still has human uh, service gas stations, but everywhere else it's self-service. That's been around for many years. There's no AI there, but that shows how the jobs were eliminated. And I think we're going to continue to see that happening. What we're looking at today in customer service experiences, even with when you call into a company to have a check-in on what you're doing with your current flight uh, or for paying a bill, um, it's been completely automated away. And the service has gotten even better in the last three years. And we don't see it often because we don't see these people day to day. They're not eating at our dinner table. We're not talking to them about their life. But the truth is those jobs are going away, which means it's not just impacting them, but it's also impacting you. And it soon could impact your career as well. And I don't like to play pessimist. I know we're playing devil's advocate here, Um, but there is the opportunity where AI's intention, right? Like what is the big goal on AI? Like why should we even use AI and all this automation? It's for efficiency, efficient markets, right? And in big cities, they're notorious for being efficient systems. And if you can make something more efficient, you will make it more efficient because you can drive down costs or increase revenue. And the challenge is every industry is gonna be impacted there. Earlier this year in April, Deloitte actually had their human capital management report and said, we're moving into a world of super jobs. Super jobs are jobs 3.0, which means the analyst at Goldman Sachs, who used to work on their Excel reports and create a PowerPoint and present to the investment banking manager and 
determine that this is the next investment that's going to help them make a lot of money, no longer is that same job. That was what they did in 2003. But today in 2019, they have NLP systems that help auto-generate reports, automatically create dashboards, and then the analysts are offering some oversight, uh, as well as some customization with the higher cognitive tasks. Uh, and then they'll also maybe help with that presentation. But that itself has eliminated the need for a lot of investment banking analysts. Where you used to have 200 traders or analysts on the floor at Goldman Sachs, today in 2019, you can do that with five to 10 people. So there has been a constant evolution. It's going to keep happening. And I tell people, it's not that you need to care about it. It's just that if you don't care about it, well, then you're putting yourself at risk. And ultimately, when you are optimizing for anything in life, you should be minimizing your risk. Maybe not for investments, right? So there could be a little play on words there. But in general, you should be creating a better process uh, if you come from that mental model for your moral hazard. Yeah, I just saw um, uh, an article. I'm looking at the date. It was August 7th where JP Morgan has now apparently um, is experimenting with an AI copywriter that uh, apparently, at least in some cases, can write better ads than than humans can. Um, so I think this is a, is a similar trend to, to what you're talking about. And do you think that the main piece of this that really comes into play is is automation that's the main player there? Or is it also kind of a logical gap where people are are less sure about what their technology is doing or how it's operating for them to produce convenience and that sort of thing? Well, I think the three big uh, industries that we're going to see rapid onset of automation in the next 10 years are data and AI, connected devices and Internet of Things, and robotics. And all three of those industries are rapidly advancing in automation. Particularly there, what's happening is the products we're using today are no longer being developed by humans. And the example that you just mentioned with JP Morgan with their copywriting uh, AI, sure, a little bit of it is public relations and talking about what's out here so they get first to market. But in fact, they're not first to market. Bloomberg and other financial companies have been creating articles with automated systems for years. If you're someone who invests in the stock market, next time you go onto any website like uh, Seeking Alpha or Bloomberg or Reuters or any of these, and you look at the general news of the day and the article says, this stock has gone up 10% and the EPS is XYZ and the dollars are Y, that could all be written by a machine. And in fact, it probably already is. That's why earlier in 2019, there were over 100,000 media and copywriting jobs eliminated in New York City from companies like BuzzFeed, Vice, and others, because all that is starting to be automated and teams are realizing, well, do we need 100 copywriters if instead we can have so many generated stories from a system and then we have a copywriter supervisor who checks through them and see which is most plausible and does some refinements there. The challenging thought is this. In a capitalist society like the United States, everything runs by money. And if money is not being made, automation is the first thought to come to mind. When we look at media companies like the New York Times and Washington Post, who now run their businesses with digital subscriptions, 
they have more in 2019 than they had print subscriptions in 2001. But when you look at other publications like the Los Angeles Times in California, the Sun Sentinel in South Florida, the Houston Chronicle, all of these ones are struggling. They don't have as many subscriptions, so they don't have as much revenue. And the truth is, revenue is driven by how much business you can bring in. And if the business is declining, the first thought that comes to mind is how automation can help solve it. So I really think that's why companies like JP Morgan are looking at AI copywriters and Bloomberg and Reuters uh, and Vice and BuzzFeed have already started getting in on those trends. I don't think ever all humans will be replaced. I think there's something to say with the sentiment of how we each think uniquely with our mental models and our perspective that a lot of people like to read and learn about. And I think that's one of the reasons why Substack recently raised, I think it was a $100 million round for human-based newsletters. So I'd like to, to tie a few of the threads that we've, that we've discussed together. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about kind of the relationship between human and machine. And, and you pointed out that you kind of have the, this kind of uh, three points that are kind of coming together between kind of AI and data on one, connected devices on another, and, and robotics on a third. And, you know, it, and you've talked about some use cases here, and um, it feels like we're almost dancing around a particular uh, uh, term that we're all uh, talking about these days anyway, uh, which is human-centered AI, and um, where it is augmenting humans, it's it's allowing for the collaboration between humans and machine, and uh, in many cases where, you know, kind of the human is sort of orchestrating a symphony of AI collaborators uh, that might be working together to get something done for a company. And so I know you like to talk a lot about human-centered AI, and, and you know, could you tell us a little bit more about what it is and why it's growing so fast and what you think the implications are going forward? Sure. So human-centered AI, as, as a term, um, just became big in the market in the last year. Uh, it became big because Stanford said, we're going to launch the High Institute, their own human-centered AI institute, with Fei-Fei Li, who's been a professor at Stanford for many years and ran Google Labs for a few years as well. And the intention is really thinking about the future because Stanford and even other major institutions like MIT with CSAIL are thinking about what is going to happen when technology is everywhere. The elimination is already happening with jobs, and it's not just in the U.S. I recently had a colleague traveling in Shenzhen, China, and they stayed at the JW Marriott, a premium ultra-luxury hotel, part of the Marriott Bonvoy brand. And when at the hotel, that individual wanted to get room service. And what did the JW Marriott do there? Now they have robotic butlers that drop off the latest Diet Coke that you'd like or your meal. They no longer have humans going from rooms. Those robotic butlers have computer vision. They can press the elevator button, go in, ring your doorbell, drop the food off, and they don't have to wait. So that it provides greater access for on-demand service 24-7. So I mention that because that's why I think Stanford and MIT and, and other institutions have moved in on this human-centered AI movement where, look, we're moving to AI. We all get it. That is the future. And sure, there's some hype. It's going to be slower and faster in certain segments than we think or expect. But if we don't start placing diverse opinions into these processes early on, thinking about bias and how we can make sure the systems work for all people, then we're gonna slip behind. So by thinking about that, you can say, when I design a process, 
there's a work for someone who's 75 years old and someone who's seven years old. Am I designing a process that can move in different terrains? Is the product going to be one that works across multiple languages? Anything that is non-accessible needs to be accessible with AI. And the reason is because otherwise you're excluding different cultures. Today, we serve all cultures primarily by hiring people who speak different languages. If you travel to Disney World or Disneyland, you get that. They have hundreds of fantastic park service uh, individuals who speak different languages and support you as tour guides throughout your journey. But in the future, that could just be a sound piece with different languages. The challenge is we have to make sure we're being accessible for all and starting to design technology that's enabling humans at the onset. One example that's been a failure that has been quite prominent in the news is how Apple with Siri, their audio-enabled assistant, uh, never had an Icelandic language for Iceland. So when you were a kid, right, now as an alpha generation or generation Z growing up, uh, you were using Siri, the human language of English to communicate with Siri, right? So you're speaking in English, but not Icelandic because Icelandic didn't exist for Siri. And what that meant is they've shown now that the Icelandic language is becoming extinct in Iceland because kids do not want to learn it and therefore parents are not going to teach it. And before you know it, we're having the diaspora of culture appearing again as a result of technology. You know, I like to think back to one of my favorite authors, uh, Jared Diamond. You know, he's written Guns, Germs, Steel, uh, Colossal. Yep, I've read it. Now Upheaval. So all, all his really interesting books and how culture and society change. And, you know, I think we're now entering this new wave and whether we call it the third industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, you know, whatever name you want to give it, I think the next 30 to 40 years is going to be a generation defined by connecting systems with internet everywhere, data everywhere, listening everywhere. And once that's complete, if we're not thinking about the human at the onset, a lot of jobs are no longer going to be here. And that might mean we need something like conditional basic income, or we need to have stronger governance to protect our societies. Of course, that depends on your mental model, but we can just look at facial recognition and see how cities all across the U.S. are banning facial recognition, both in schools and in cities, because of the concern of jobs going away and the concerns of privacy. So, David, I, I really appreciate how you brought up this idea of kind of how how technology makes an impact on on culture. I think that's actually really important. I think of things like, you know, everybody kind of thinks of Google Translate as being, you know, so great, which which it is in, in many ways and is it is an amazing accomplishment. But, you know, it supports, uh, I forget how many languages now, around, around 100, and uh, some of them better than others. But there's, you know, over 7,000 languages being spoken in the world right now. Um, so it's, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. And, um, you know, over 6,000 of those languages are spoken by 25% of the world's population, which means that those are basically marginalized communities, right? And so when technology has been made available, like you were talking about in certain languages, all it tends to do is kind of further marginalize communities. Um, and what I'm wondering is, 
you know, what do you think is a way that we could incentivize sort of creating technology for these marginalized or, you know, using financial terms, emerging markets or, or whatever you want to call them? Do you think that there's a role there to be played by regulation? Is that needed? Or is there a way that kind of we as AI practitioners can kind of have, you know, adjust our practices and our workflows to better orient ourselves in terms of the technology that we're building? I think it could be a combination of both. I hope it's more that we as developers reorient ourselves and our technology. You know, think about if you are a developer building a product, you don't want your product to break, right? So whatever the user input is, you're designing it so that if that's a number, the number gets fed into the system. But if it's text, the text gets converted to a number, so it still gets fed into the system. So I think just like data scientists and engineers today who are developing their APIs and their systems not to break based on inputs, the same thing should be that are we thinking about humans first in these systems? We're starting to see AI guidelines. I know the European Union recently launched their own um, AI ethics standards that came out a few months ago. Uh, There's similar initiatives going on in the US as well on ethics and about integrating these systems for all. Um, But you know, it's really about having the conversation and then making sure you take action. So just like you mentioned about the languages, I had the opportunity to sit down on a panel and advisory session with one of the leading candidates for the New York City um, mayoral election in 2021. And that exact topic you brought up we brought up as well. So, you know, you mentioned 6,000, 7,000 plus languages. And in fact, in New York City, um, yes, over 20% of the people do not speak English. And 10% of that, right, is about 800,000 people of the 8 million people in New York. So what if you take some of those languages, just the top 10 other languages that are not English or Spanish is about a quarter percent, uh, sorry, 25% of the population. That's enough to have enough votes to win an election. Um, Not that the goal should be just to win an election, but it should be serving all constituents. And when you're in an accessible city like New York City, it should not just be translating services for eight languages, but how about, you know, at least a hundred of them or more? And I think when we start thinking about processes, we need to do a lot more competitive intelligence, a lot of research on who our constituents are, and then to best serve them. And if that means rolling out a feature in tranches, that's totally fine. But as long as you have the goals there and you're thinking about excessively on the onset, it's paving you in the right direction. So one of the things that I've heard uh, talked about a lot lately uh, and kind of almost as a as an extension maybe of human-centered AI is I've heard about uh, empathetic technology and empathetic AI and and kind of where we need to go with that and how do you connect those two from a relationship standpoint? Where Where is empathetic meet human-centered and, you know, are there other components there that I'm missing? Yeah, so I think bridging the gap on human-centered AI and empathetic design, there's a great uh, story that came out in California. I think it was with Kaiser just a few months ago where there was this, a grandparent in his 70 years old on his deathbed at the hospital and they sent a robot in to say there's no other treatment we can do for you you're going to die go home something like that i'm paraphrasing of course but you know that robot not empathetic design now what could be empathetic design 
a robot that's serving as a nurse to actually clean a wound when you can't always have a nurse on call because they're working 16-hour shifts, or um, a robot that could have infrared computer vision to detect where your vein is so to better help inject your medication or you know the insulin or whichever treatment you need. So that could be very empathetic. Um, there are ways to do that, and it starts with design thinking. Uh, in fact, on the Humane podcast, I talked with um, Chris Butler from IPsoft just about that design thinking and, and all these questions that are, that are critical because you need to think about what is the customer experience or the consumer experience. And that's this whole new field that's um, been coined in 2019, CX. So now it's the CX industry um, about making sure it, it is about humans, it's about customers, and it's about empathy. I think we as a society, um, have the moral obligation to provide the best possible customer service. And by doing that, you build loyalty and you keep customers and create more revenue. But if you don't do that, you create the risk of not only alienating your customers, but also losing those who are most valuable. One classic case of this is a lot of the cell phone companies now uh, have been using uh, data to understand what is your threshold of getting angry to switch from a service provider. And they've been using that data to see how many times they could push back on you before giving you a discount or giving you um, a change in your service. I knew it. Right? It's real. Come on. We, we all like to think it's not happening, but it's, um, I call it hacking AI, right? Which people have done for a while. But, you know, when you're talking to one of these companies, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, AT&T on the phone, you better believe that in real time, they're taking your audio, it's converting to text, they're getting the sentiment, and based on that, they might be making some different decisions if you sound more angry or you sound more calm. So, you know, here on the, the Practical AI podcast, of course, we like to keep things practical. And as you're talking through all these things, of course, you know, it's probably easier for me to see practically some of those hacks like you're talking about now, like hacking to optimize or to, you know, make things more efficient or to automate or whatever those things are just because of my like technical mind. But as you have gone through and you've, of course, advised a lot of different companies, you've worked with a lot of different students. And, and teams as, the, as they're gearing up. What are some practical sorts of ways that like me as an AI practitioner, are, are there some kind of practical steps I could take to start modifying my workflow such that I am becoming, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more empathetic or human centered in the way that I design um, the systems that I'm that I'm building. Have you found anything that kind of consistently helps or is, is practical in that sense? So if you're building systems today and you're thinking, I want to integrate AI, I want to bring in automation, but I want to make sure I best serve my customers, it's important to first decide, are you going to go with a system you're building from the ground up with code and engineers where you can control each and every step in the process? Or are you gonna take a pre-baked solution that one of these data science as a service companies or one of the cloud providers like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, or IBM, or others have available for you? The reason I say that is because if you take a pre-baked solution, that bias and that inherent potentially inaccuracy that exists in the systems 
will be present in your products. Could be easier to implement it, but you may not be able to customize it as much as you want. So you definitely want to consider first whether your organization or your team has the technical chops and availability and bandwidth to do some coding uh, or use a pre-baked solution. I think secondly, then it's always thinking about your customer. So um, I think design guidelines are only starting to emerge right now. Um, there's more human guidelines. There's been ones recently on cybersecurity that have come out in the last few weeks. Uh, but right now, I think it's still a very nascent industry on determining the exact guidelines. I think just starting to ask questions such as, you know, thinking of like business model canvas, right? Or lean model canvas. Who are my customers? You know, how am I serving them? I think that's a great starting point um, because in fact, most of the times these questions that we ask as engineers, where do all those answers lie? In our mind. We never write them down. Once you start writing it down, it looks completely different. And that's why I think it's important that if you're building a product or changing a product that's putting humans first, think about partnering with someone who is a strategist in business or someone who might come from the liberal arts background because they're going to add that unique vantage that could help you think about each and every person. I love how you kind of came full circle right there, you know, and kind of got back as you know, I know we, we talked a little bit about those different backgrounds uh, early in the call. And um, so, you know, if somebody is, they've gotten a little taste of kind of what human-centered AI and design thinking and empathetic technologies are in this conversation, but if they want to dig into that, do you have any resources that you think are particularly good or you can point them to that listeners, you know, can go and kind of see more about it, you know, understand more and learn more um, in this in this effort? Yeah, one of my favorite uh, trend reports that's been talking a lot about these sub-industries is from uh, one of my mentors in New York who I went through her uh, teaching training fellowship, Amy Webb. So Amy Webb has this new book, The Big Nine. She talks a lot about technology and trends and teaches at NYU. But she has um, a tech trend report that is almost 400 pages this year. So it is definitely a long read. Wow. But they're all broken out by all these sub-trends. Some are AI some is you know, human-based, some is cyber. Um, and you can start to see what companies are working there and what those products look like. I think also um, Matt Turk from First Mark Capital in New York, uh, really like him. And he has, uh, every year he creates a big dashboard of all the AI data science companies and what they're doing uh, in the industry. That's really where the data science as a service has been emerging. And he's also looking at companies that are starting to think about ethics. And I think um, some of those were shown this year, but I think starting next year, we're going to see a lot of those companies emerging into the trends. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing those things. I know I'm going to take a look right afterwards, but um, really been great to have you on the podcast, David. It's been, been awesome to hear about your perspective on human-centered AI, uh, to hear a little bit about Galvanize and data science learning and all sorts of things. So um, I really appreciate you, you being on the show and really uh, recommend to our listeners to go check out the Humane podcast and, um, and take a listen, um, see some of that great content that, that was mentioned. But uh, thank you so much for, for joining us, David. Thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. 
right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Practically High. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor, go on iTunes, give us a rating, go in your podcast app and favorite it. If you are on Twitter or a social network, share a link with a friend. Whatever you got to do, share the show with a friend if you enjoyed it. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This episode is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com. When you go there, pop in your email address, get our weekly email keeping you up to date with the news and podcasts for developers in your inbox every single week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you.